0: Shrink wrap radio number 820, Liverpool therapist Alan Perry on his guidebook for therapists removing traumatic memories.
1: And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink wrap radio. Wrap Radio. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous. It's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave.
0: My guest today is Liverpool therapist, Alan Perry. He's the author of How to Remove Trauma Response a memory reconsolidation guide for therapists and coaches, and he is the director of the Liverpool Psychotherapy Practice. We'll be discussing his fascinating book and his practice. Now, here's the interview. Alan Perry, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio.
1: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I'm really glad to have you here, and I understand that actually you have been listening to the show for some time.
1: I've been listening to the show for absolutely years. And I have to say as well, David, that it's had a big impact on my practice as well. There are certain key interviews, you know, I'm thinking of like, um, the Daniel Brown one, for instance, uh, especially because the transcript was there. Uh, I'm pretty sure you've had Bruce Ecker on as well. Oh yeah. yeah um, I've had Bruce so w- yeah. So when I went on my deep dive around this, then <laughs> you were certainly one of the resources that I landed upon. So it's had a huge, a huge impact on, on my own practice, so thank you.
0: Well, that's great. That's so rewarding for me to hear, yeah. I'll tell you. That, that uh, will keep me going for some years yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I was interested in your name, which has uh, got a, a, an interesting spelling, which I want yeah. our listeners and viewers to know about. It's I pronounce it Alan, but it's actually yeah. spelled A-L-U-N,
1: Yeah, so I'm from Liverpool, so I actually sound like the guy who does your introduction uh, because I'm about eight minutes away from John Lennon's house. And so about an hour from here is Wales, which is attached to England, but is a separate country. It's part of Britain. Uh, And it's the Welsh language spelling of Alan. So even though I'm surrounded by Liverpool people, so everyone just calls me Alan or Al, the proper pronunciation would be Alin from the Welsh.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. And
0: and fascinating to me that that Wales is only an hour away from where you are.
1: That's right. It's very close from Liverpool. Yeah, there's a lot of Welsh influence on the city of Liverpool, definitely.
0: Well, I want to talk to you, you know, you're the author, I should mention before we get (laughs) any more into this, that you're the author of How to Remove Trauma Response, a memory reconsolidation guidebook for therapists and coaches. Yeah, and uh, I think it's a smashing book, and uh, the Thank right you. book at the right time, and I'll we'll be discussing it quite a bit. But I would like to get into your background a little bit more. Sure. Did you actually grow up in Liverpool?
1: Yeah, I've lived in Liverpool my whole life. Yeah, yeah.
0: Now, now you're probably not old enough to have been alive when the Beatles were were doing their thing, but. Mm. Uh, What's Liverpool like today, would you say, compared back to the 60s? Is it similar or is it radically? Well, it's more
1: modern, obviously. and There's a lot more kind of uh, new buildings, a lot more regenerated. But the same kind of um, beating heart that came up with Mersey Beats, the same character, the same verve of the place, the same spirit, that's definitely alive. Um, So, yeah, I think it's got a lot in common with uh, how things were back then, even though there are obvious differences yeah
0: and you shared with me that you're uh you're a musician yourself as a guitarist and singer
1: yeah and as a singer, yeah so before I was a therapist, I was actually in the performing arts so um singing songwriter musician um improvisational theater yeah so oh, nice. that that was my background before therapy actually yeah so yeah. it's good to be talking to a a fellow guitarist
0: yeah yeah at one time <laughs> at one time so tell us a little bit about your educational background
1: in terms of therapy you mean or just generally you can, you
0: can say generally and then work your way up into therapy
1: yeah so I mean I listen to your show and I, I listen to these wonderful inspiring people who who started doing this stuff at 18 and I've not done anything since and I'm one of those people who've come to this relatively late, you know, like a lot of the people that I trained with. So my educational background was nothing to do with therapy initially. I did a political science degree. I then did stuff around software technology. Uh, And then a huge part of my career was either in social enterprise or um, as a lecturer or as a musician. Uh, and so I retrained as a therapist relatively late on, which is good in many ways because I think it gives you a fresh look um, on things if you're coming from a completely different standpoint. So.
0: Sure. So I, you've, you've had some life under your belt, and uh, and probably already gone through a lot of your issues in uh, normally healthy and unhealthy ways. And, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, so that's good. So, uh, how about how did you get into trauma work? And I, well, I joined you. I've got coffee too. So, yeah,
1: yeah. I've got a cup of uh, honey tea there. So, yeah, in terms of the trauma work, it kind of struck me that that was at the root of all of this, especially if you if you widely define it. And you'll notice in the book that I've got quite a wide definition of trauma as any kind of psychological injury that still impacts life today. Mm -hmm. And so I recognize in terms of my own background and the background of the people that I was working with, that this seemed to be, this seemed to be the pivotal thing really. So when I was listening to a lot of these wonderful therapists talk about trauma, I thought, well, this is, this is much more encompassing than just, um, you know, very, very intense trauma that we're all hitting against these traumas with a big or a small T and it seems to be that this is the thing that is kind of spiking on there the systems into these into these places of unsafety and activation and often hijacking us so that so one of the things I did David and I don't know if you've come across Marshall Rosenberg at all so he he was the developer of something called nonviolent communication and I got very into that at one stage and I'm still a big fan of it and I see it showing up in things like a Margo therapy, like some of the key principles, uh-huh. that when we have discussions, we share our feelings and needs and not blame the other. Right. And I noticed that as much of a fan that I was around that, it's very difficult to do when your nervous system is activated. So I got very interested in the nervous system response. And I think at the root of that is, is often kind of traumatic injury, if you like, a psychological injury. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at its heart is is trauma. So I kind of went down that route and got very, very interested in working with people who had struggled in that sense and that that struggle was still impacting their life today.
0: I have the impression, and I might be drawing on somebody else, I might be mixed up, but were you doing some therapy work before you discovered uh, memory reconsolidation?
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I was so... I mean, my journey, and this might resonate with therapists listening, my journey was after I came out of training, I had the experience that I didn't necessarily feel adequately resourced as I was working out in the wild as a therapist. So I would often have situations where we would come to a really good conceptualization of what was going on. Yeah. And then the next stage is, so what do we do about it, seemed weaker in terms Uh of my training anyway. Yeah. And so I did what a lot of therapists do and then learn another model. And that that model was better in terms of that second half of the piece. But I was noticing still that even though I was getting better results as a result of learning that model, when people were coming with trauma histories, it was still helping some of them, but it seemed to be a gap still. And my first instinct again is like, well, let's learn another model to try and fill that gap. But you can carry on forever in that sort of way.
0: This fits and synchronistically so well with the yeah. interview before this. I say synchronistically because it it just happened. There was no plan on okay. my part of what the order of these things would be. <laughs> uh, but it was uh, a, a woman therapist who uh, does EMDR. Right. And, and uh, one of the things I like about your book, and we can get into this, was that you said – uh, there are other approaches that ultimately end up using – getting to the same place. Yes. And and I think she's a good example of that. And uh, and she had a similar experience. She was trained in behavior therapy and, right. and exposure therapy and all of that stuff. And she said it would last for a little while, but then it, it didn't seem to stick. Exactly. People get a little exactly. bit of relief, but it didn't yes. stick. Yes. And so she makes a very strong claim, as you make a very strong claim, you know, basically saying, well, look, uh, this is the cure for trauma.
1: Well, it's interesting that she's AMDR, because EMDR is one of those um, modalities that do, does actually fit with what the brain needs in order to trigger memory reconsolidation. So this book is all about memory reconsolidation, which is, basically the the brain's own inbuilt healing mechanism. It's like every client comes into our office with a trauma removal machine that they happen to be born with and is located in their own brain. So they're already resourced to heal. And yeah. I'm sure there's many people who've healed without us, you know, independently of therapists.
0: Right. Sure, look at the people around the world, people who get by somehow, have gotten by for uh, other... Cultures or subcultures have come up with yeah. their own approaches, and uh, and so we do have a um, homeostatic tendency towards health. Um,
1: so well, what I noticed when I yeah. when I discovered um, that memory reconsolidation was out there, it was that it was like the thing that I'd been looking for. So I studied it really deeply. Like I say, Bruce Ecker's work was phenomenal in this regard in terms yes. of going down that rabbit hole and many others as well. And what I realized then is that you can actually simplify your own improvements as a therapist, because rather than being on this never ending cycle, you can focus in on the simplicity of what the brain needs to do what it can do, which is overwrite those trauma responses and get good at that. And what happens then is that when you do need other approaches because you're starting with what the brain actually needs, then you're able to kind of build other approaches on much more efficiently because every modality has its story and its narrative and there's a lot of fat in each modality. But once you're able to put it through the template of the the thing that the brain needs, you can basically take that good stuff out and you become much more efficient anyway at building up a repertoire of approaches. And um, within your practice anyhow. So that's, that was my starting point then. Once I realized that memory reconsolidation existed, that it means trauma is removed so you don't have relapse and um, that it means you don't have to manage the trauma because it's completely gone. Then that's, that's my foundation that I then build upon. And indeed, the protocol that I devised and is in the book was something that I was able to build from the ground up, basically from yeah. knowing what it is that the brain
0: needs. Yeah, I don't think there's another book quite like yours out there. I think this book, not that I've read them all, but I think that your book is really unique in terms of uh, kind of starting at ground zero and then moving along quickly so that, and, and I think it's particularly aimed at therapists, but, yeah. but I also get the impression that anybody who's dealing with trauma or is a client it would help them to understand the process and may might help them move through it a little bit more quickly.
1: Yeah. I deliberately wrote it to be accessible and even the layout, I wanted it not to be an intimidating book. Yeah. Um I wanted it to be something that anybody could pick up, even if they're not a therapist and be right. at that level of understanding. Yeah. And so I, I really wanted it to be something that wasn't intimidating that people could pick up. And very, very quickly, like within a couple of days or a weekend, have a real understanding of what I'm talking about here and be able to start making the first steps to actually applying this because it's not really rocket science is it you know what what the brain is basically requiring is a prediction error. So the brain is a predictive machine basically we we're operating on these predictions we have a problem we we want something other than the problem. Most change is easy we're making changes all the time and so are our clients. And yet sometimes there's some sort of response which blocks the change. And so my stance is that makes sense. I've always been drawn to more constructivist approaches. So my sense is that's not a disorder. That makes perfect sense. Let's figure out how and why it makes sense. Uh And so once you discover what the, if you like, the trauma prediction of greater suffering is, then what we do then is we generate a prediction error using whatever mechanism you know, that you might decide to use. But you basically have the, the emotional learning, as Bruce Ecker might call it, the emotional learning that keeps the problem alive, the traumatic prediction, as I sometimes think about it, and then a mismatch experience. And for me in my work, that's often using the imagination in order to generate a mismatch experience. And so what you're giving the nervous system there, or the meaning-making or the implicit memory, however you choose to think about it, is a prediction error. And in that prediction error, what basically happens is that the brain pathway that holds that trauma response becomes unlocked. It's a little bit like opening a combination safe. So the brain kind of does keep hold of this existential, deeply emotional learning. And so it's not like a cupboard, you can't just access it. There are these steps that you need to take in order to open it like a combination safe. But those steps are straightforward. The hardest part, I suppose, is finding out what that trauma prediction of greater suffering is. Like if I only allow myself to let go of this problem and get what I want, then I'm predicting there's something worse instead. And so when we get to the heart of that trauma prediction, when we start to understand and discover where that comes from, All the brain really needs is a mismatch experience that delivers a prediction error, that kind of power of surprise, as a recent book talked about. And then all you need to do then is essentially repeat that experience. So the first one unlocks the brain pathway. The brain pays attention. Like This old truth is now being held at the same time as something that is contradictory and they both can't be right. And then the repetition of the two of those things just being bumped together gently, whether that be conversationally or imaginally, is the thing that then overwrites. So it's it's not something that is like hugely rocket science. And it also means that lots and lots of different approaches can be used to get to the same destination.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. And I I'm also very fond of, you know, there have been a lot of different models of, way of th- sort of thumbnail descriptions of what the brain is about, what it does. But the idea that the brain is a prediction machine, mm-hmm. boy, that's one that fits in my mind very easily and yeah. uh, makes a lot of sense to me. And that seems to be part of the bedrock that you're coming from. Um, so let's talk about the you know you mentioned the mismatch and so on. So let's get a little bit into the mechanics of it. Um, give us an, take us through, uh, and if you want to give us a case history, I know you know one of the the nice things is you've got a number of case histories in the book yeah. to uh, sort of re- to uh, represent the different steps of the, of the process and. And where they where it might get off track, but um, yeah, give us an, an example of what you mean by a mismatch and how that comes up.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think the first thing I'd say is in order to create a mismatch, you need to know what it is that you're mismatching. So yeah, I suppose you even we re- rewind a step in order to give a prediction error, you need to know what is the prediction that when you mismatch it is going to create change for the person. So a big part of the work is actually in in that discovery. So let's let's say for instance, there's a person who says, um, "I don't like mixing with people because people don't like me, okay. uh, and I'm not the kind of person who who is going to attract a friend." So that is a is a prediction that means that it makes sense why they're not particularly socially um, gregarious because they're running this prediction that if I'm with people. I'm just gonna be mocked and rejected. And so you can understand that. So in order to generate a mismatch experience, that's the prediction that you're creating a prediction error for. So there's a couple of ways you can do it. You could either do it conversationally or you could use the imagination as a resource to do it. So I'll start with the simple one, which is the conversation first. You could ask an exception question. So like in solution-focused brief therapy or narrative therapy, they have this concept of exception questions, which is, so tell me about a time where you did have a friend. Or maybe as a therapist, just just alert to mentions of these exceptions, these things that exist in reality outside of the client's Mm -hmm. story. And then they might say, you know, well, when I was at school, I had this very close friend or When I was in the workplace that I used to work with, I had lots of friends or I used to play um, soccer over Friday night and I used to get on with a couple of people there. So there you've got some mismatch information because Mm -hmm. what you've got is this belief that I'm not the kind of person that people like and they don't want to be my friend. But you've also got some mismatch information, which from their real life, there were times in their life where the opposite is true. Now, the difficulty is that these two dots are not really ever necessarily joined together. And so what we would do there to generate a mismatch experience, and it may or may not land, but we'll bring those two together conversationally. So I'll give an imaginal example in a moment. But conversationally, you might just say something like, so you don't take any sides. It's just a curious question. So how is that for you to be holding this old truth that you're not the kind of person Who generates friends and at the same time realize that in your old workplace, you actually had many friends. How is that like for you to hold these two truths together at the same time? Good. Sometimes it doesn't land, but when it lands, you know, it lands because there's that penny drop moment. Sometimes it's a laugh. Sometimes it's a staring into space. There's a silence. And then I will just sit back and let them sit with it. So when it lands, it's a sign, and obviously I'm not in their brain, so I can't be completely sure, but it is a sign to me that this mismatch has landed and that they're currently in the midst of a mismatch experience as they hold these two competing truths together at the same time. So that there is a mismatch experience because as they place themselves in the experience of that contradictory information, it disconfirms their old truth Mm -hmm. that is predicting the greater suffering and is keeping the problem with them all of this time. The other way that you could do it is imaginally. So, um, for instance, I might say to a client, we might find a scene. So I might say, for instance, let's say that this is a movie of your life and what the director wants, the movie is about this particular struggle and the director just wants a scene or two that is going to let the audience basically see that scene and say, ah, no, that makes sense. Now I understand why this character is keeping away from people even when they want to be gregarious. Yeah. And so they'll come up with a couple of scenes and they might land on one. And what we can do then is reimagine that scene completely in the client's favour. So they might go back to something and say, um, when I was nine, for instance, I was bullied um, I went to the local church. it was a new place, and I tried to make friends and they all laughed at my clothes and they all bullied me in that moment. So this might be a scene that they feel really makes sense of their story and so we can go into that scene. we can start to look at what are the feelings that are generated in that moment, mm. what are the feelings that they would want instead. So again, you get in a sense of a mismatch and then by reimagining the same scene but going entirely in the client's favour, aiming to give those mismatching feelings and emotions and meaning-making, as they reimagine that scene, they experience that prediction error. So the nervous system is expecting this whole scene to go as it did, and yet all these wonderful things happen instead. And that's an example of a mismatch experience as well, but that one happens imaginally.
0: And I find that that's more effective usually yeah that's a it's a, a great uh, illustration i th- thank you for bringing that out and it also strikes me it's it's um, it smacks of other approaches that I've known yes. about over the years yeah. uh, other approaches that rely heavily on imagination and um, redrawing scenarios and so on from a variety yeah. of uh of theoretical basis, whether it be from a kind of a Jungian framework or a psychoanalytic framework or some more recent framework.
1: Uh, well, that's it. It's got a very long history in therapy, hasn't it, yeah. the use of the imagination as a, as a workhorse for us. Yeah. What you're doing here in particular is your – the way I think of it in terms of the final stages, like after the discovery, is I have an equation that I keep in mind – and this is what the brain needs. It needs us to activate the old prediction, the old trauma response, if you like, and then mismatch. So activate plus mismatch plus o- plus repeat. So activate plus mismatch plus repeat is what the brain needs to overwrite it. So in that si- in that situation, for instance, by revisiting the old scene in all its scariness as it did happen, yeah. that activates. It only needs to be activated gently, by the way. It doesn't have to be a big activation. It's almost like um, if you wanted to put something in a in a particular cell on a spreadsheet, you click that particular cell first. So this is us basically just telling the brain which brain pathway we're dealing with. So by reimagining it, they go back at that church, for instance, just as it happened first time round. That activates some of the initial uh, responses and prediction of it not going well. And then immediately it goes in the client's favor. And so then you've got the prediction error. So what you've got inherent in that scene is the activation and then the imaginal um, mismatch. And I suppose I'm saying that because just having an imaginal experience, like we can look to a lot of approaches, but if we just have imaginal experiences and it's not activated first, then anatomically, what's happening there is the NICE experience is being placed in a completely different brain pathway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it becomes counteractive. The trauma is intact. Oh. Much like the spreadsheet example, you are typing the number in a completely different cell than the one you needed to type it in. So that, that juxtaposition where, first of all, you activate the old and follow it up with a mismatch experience is absolutely key. So I'll give you a further example. You had Daniel Brown on uh, a few years ago. Massively influential interview, uh, especially because the transcript is on your site as well. Yeah. But he does wonderful imaginal work around ideal parents and various feelings of safety and attunement and soothing and reassurance and expressions of delight and support. And the way I use that a lot, but I always activate first, So I will activate the old response and then lead into the scene of safety. And then we'll come back and reconnect with the original issue and then have the scene of soothing. So there's a lot of imaginal approaches that I believe could be improved and made even more potent by explicitly having the activation first because then you're giving the brain what it needs in order to trigger memory reconsolidation. And when it triggers memory reconsolidation, it will actually override that old prediction, that old trauma response.
0: Uh, let me ask you, since your book has kind of a, a roadmap, if you will, yeah. or almost like a recipe for the steps to, to follow and so on, are you able to, um, and this may be an unreasonable thing to ask and to expect, but do you have a sense of, uh, is, is this a shortening of the process of therapy for most people? Uh, Do you have an average length of time, you would say, uh, an average number of sessions that would be required?
1: Yeah, I, I think it has. But the caveat I'd say to that is the larger, so there's three steps that I think of when I'm doing this work. So first of all, we're identifying the problem, and we're enriching the problem, and we're trying to find out what the client wants instead. And then secondly, what I'm trying to understand is, given the client knows that they don't want the problem and they know what they want instead, why are they not getting it this time? Because normally they do. You know, someone sat in the dark will get up and put the light on. They'll make the change that they they need. So what is happening here that is keeping them in the problem that they don't want? So that's the second part of it where we're trying to discover how it makes sense that this problem is still alive. And then in the final stage, we actually remove that trauma prediction. Now it's, it's that middle bit that is the trickier part. It's that middle part that can, that it is probably the most time consuming. Like once you know what the trauma prediction is, but you've got a good idea what it is, the mismatching doesn't actually take that long. The reconsolidation piece is actually very, very quick
0: but do you find you have to go sort of over and over that it's a recursive process that a person thinks, okay, this is the problem, but then it kind of reveals some other painful memory and that you end up going, if you will, deeper and deeper.
1: That can happen. And sometimes as well, you're bouncing between the stages of discovering the kind of prediction if you like and doing the prediction error it's a little bit like the way i think of this let's say someone has a an allergic rash on their face
0: yeah
1: and let's say they're allergic to peanuts chocolate and ice cream and you deal with the peanuts but they've still got a rash on the face and you've made some progress but we now need to deal with the chocolate and the ice cream so in in a trauma history especially with developmental trauma There can sometimes be a bit of a patchwork quilt where there will be certain adjacent uh, meaning making, if you like, that is still holding the problem alive. So you might have a person who overcomes their sense of threat around one thing, but they're still holding on to the problem in some way. And their somatic reaction might even be slightly different. You know, they might have butterflies where they had a tight throat before. But nonetheless, they're not ready yet to let go of the problem because there's still some reason that makes getting what they want more threatening than keeping the problem. So sometimes you're bouncing in between the discovery work and the reconsolidation work. And then at the end of that, you check whether it's actually being successful. When you And that's a big part of it, really, because either the problem will go or... It hasn't worked, and you'll you'll come back and make another attempt of it, which is more rare. Or what's more common is that you'll come back and find another another patch in that patchwork quilt, and start working with that adjacent reason why the problem is still essential to keep at least for now.
0: Yeah. Now you know sometimes when you when you uh, look at a at a book or an approach that's got specific steps spelled yeah. out as yours does it can a person can probably mistakenly get the impression that oh well this is this is going to be very boring for the therapist to always lead people to sue the same steps over and over again Yeah, yeah. but uh, I get the impression and maybe you explicitly said so that this really invites a lot of creativity from absolutely the I'm
1: glad you said that I mean that the thing about modalities is modalities are very protocol heavy. And so if the client isn't fitting the protocol, it can induce a certain amount of panic in the therapist. Like what do we do now? Because the, the client is rejecting aspects of this. When you focus just on the destination, if you like, and the destination is you activate, you mismatch, and you repeat. And that's what the brain needs. It means that you can travel to that destination And even the process in terms of how you do that destination, that's completely up for grabs. So this isn't some sort of monotheistic thing. It's just that this is the only brain mechanism that we know of that is capable of removing trauma. And so let's head to that destination, because it's better to remove trauma than to manage it. But how we do that leads to all sorts of improvisation. So when we focus on what the brain needs, it frees us up in therapy sessions as well. So I'll give an example of that.
0: Yeah, I, I was working with someone. Insert that
1: you yeah, mentioned
0: sure. uh, when we when we were talking before we got deeply into it that you were an improvisational musician, and so <laughs> um, that yeah, kind yeah. of improvisational flexibility and your need for that. Evidently is met in this approach. It gives you an Well, it was
1: improvisational theatre that I used to do. We used to improvise full-length plays, but I think you're right. I think yeah. the um I think there's a lot from that world which feels very parallel in a therapy room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what this allows you to do though is to is to have that dance with the client. So the example I was gonna say is I was doing a version of the Daniel Brown as the mismatch tool. I thought this would be a good fit because it was something to do with uh, a childhood thing. And the clients, which I always give them permission to do anyway, kind of rejected it. That doesn't fit me, they said. And so rather than being in a state of panic and like, oh, no, what am I going to do with my protocol? I didn't have a protocol. We were just able to kind of work it through together and come up with a a version of this that really did fit them. And then we were able to carry on and, and do it and achieve memory reconsolidation. Um a, a colleague of mine who I who's a member of my coaching academy um, she had a very similar situation. She noticed the the work she was attempting to do was getting shut down by the time constraints of the session and she just she just invented something in the moment and in that invention in the moment it still fit what the brain needed and because that was her focus and everything else was up for grabs. She wasn't constrained by a protocol, but she was liberated by this sense of I just need to try and aim for memory consolidation here and and do something that is going to meet that. And so she created this wonderful hybrid in the moment. So it's really important when people read the book, even though I've written about a number of different protocols and even listed one that I devised from the ground up, that is not memory consolidation. It is just one of probably an infinite number of ways of getting to that destination, and it might be a good starting point for people if they're new to this um but crucially, that equation that I keep repeating in the book of activate the old prediction, generate a prediction error, mismatch experience and then and then repeat that bumping together that's the thing that you have to hold in mind because that is ultimately your destination. How you get there. That can be between yourself, your own personal style, and what fits the client.
0: Let's make sure we come back to the Coaching Academy. But uh, just to stick with what you're saying a little bit more, um, you do have a place where you talk about the seven steps of transformational change.
1: Yeah, and that comes from Bruce Ecker, you know, to give full credit there. Uh, in one of Bruce Ecker's papers, he lists these seven steps. Oh. So Ecker is a therapist, but he also used to be a scientist. So these really heavy neuroscience papers that comes out, he gets them. You know, he's able to read science speak. And so he's done a lot of translation. Um, he's been that bridge between that world and the therapist world. Yeah, right. So the seven steps I talk about originate from Bruce Ecker. Okay. So, so the seven steps basically. Maybe
0: quickly, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: So, you can basically split them into preparation, almost like you're baking a cake, really. Preparation, then the implementation, and then you verify that it worked. So, in terms of preparation, first of all, you find what the problem is. Secondly, you find what Bruce Ecker calls the target learning, but I think of as the prediction of greater suffering that keeps the problem alive. So, you find the problem, the prediction, And then you're finding some mismatch information that could be done through exception questions or you might decide that you would reimagine a scene or do some imaginal work. And so once you've got your ingredients, you can then go to the go to the uh, oven, if you like, and then bake the cake. And so when you are implementing it, it's simply that equation that I've already mentioned. You activate the target learning, the old prediction. You activate the mismatch experience. And then you repeat those two together. And then the final step of the seven is that you verify whether it worked. Yeah. So so shall I go through that again? It's basically find the problem, find the target learning, find the mismatch, (laughs) and then activate the target learning, generate the mismatch experience itself, and then just repeat it.
0: Yeah. Another interesting section in the book, which I I really thought would mean a lot to uh, people who are trying to learn this approach, is you – Talk about the ways that it can go wrong. It can go off track. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so tell us a little bit how uh, memory reconsolidation could go wrong as a practitioner is trying to move along well, the path.
1: Yeah, by going wrong, I think you mean in that you have all the ingredients in place, but you don't get memory reconsolidation. You exactly. can miss it. Yeah. So, again, anybody listening to this, go back to that core equation of activate the target learning, the old prediction, and then team it up with a mismatch experience. They're the kind of two conkers, if you like, that you have to bring together. So you could be a therapist with all the ingredients together, and it could look on the face of it that you're doing the same thing as someone who does achieve memory reconsolidation. But, for instance, let's say um, let's say you notice a mismatch, So in the book, there's a woman called Vicky. She never reaches out for support because she expects that um, she will be a burden to her friends. And so even though she's got that kind of support network, she doesn't reach out because nobody cares for her anyway, is her belief. And yet what I noticed in working with Vicky is that her friends stayed at the hospital all night with her. So that's a mismatch experience there that we could use some mismatch information Now, if I'd have got those ingredients, one of the things I could have done is just focused on how nice it was that her friend was there and questioned in terms of like, how did that feel for you? And I could have gone into the whole nice experience of it, but I'd failed to activate the old learning first.
0: Yeah, just reassuring her that uh, people are there for her and so on, but somehow that's not going
1: to do it. Well, it's counteractive, you see, because if you just give somebody a nice experience or revisit a nice experience and they don't experience it as a mismatch, you're basically building up and nurturing an alternative brain pathway. And when you do that, the trauma pathway is intact. And because it's intact, people are going to have the chance of relapsing. So what we always want to do is, like I say, click in the cell on the spreadsheet first. We activate the brain pathway that we want to yeah. overwrite. Yeah. And so in that case, if you were to just focus on the friend and how lovely that was, you would have missed an opportunity because there was no activation and bringing these two meaning makings together yeah. to generate a mismatch experience. Another okay. way that you, uh-huh. sorry Dave.
0: How do your clients find you? Uh, do they, Do they say, oh, I want memory reconsolidation or, or do they say this guy is a trauma person or you know, how what are they looking for or do they just what we would call run of the mill
1: struggling I think with because being I, yeah no I think because i I particularly state that I work with adults who are still struggling with the fact that they had childhoods that felt less than safe that they find me on that basis uh-huh. but I do actually have a free course on my therapy website that teaches clients that there is actually now a different paradigm from simple trauma management. A lot of people think that what you do with trauma is that you manage it. A lot of people think as well that if they've had the effect of this for, say, 50 years, that it is entrenched. When in actual fact, this process works much more like an audio cassette. So if I played an audio cassette for 50 years it doesn't make the song on the audio cassette entrenched or any more resistant to someone who comes and tapes over it on me. And that's essentially how this works as well. So even if someone has been struggling with the same issue for 50 years, a client will sometimes think, well, this is entrenched. But the good news is actually that, again, if you simply find out what the trauma prediction is, that is keeping their problem alive, whatever it happens to be, Once you found that, activate that old trauma prediction, that old trauma response, and then produce the mismatch experience at the same time. Then it's going to wipe it in just the same way as somebody wipes an audio cassette. It's not kind of entrenched. It doesn't mean if you've had this 50 years, it's going to take 50 years to overcome it. So I do try and educate people that there is a different possibility now. And hopefully this book, um, can do the same as well and people can read it and then seek out people yeah. who uh, who do memory reconsolidation work.
0: So were you saying that you have a, a recording that uh, that's available online that people can, or when they call your office, that they can listen to this educational?
1: Uh, yeah, it's a video basically. So it's, it's a video. My, yeah. my own practice is the Liverpool Psychotherapy practice. So if they go to my website, you know, they don't even have to have contact with me. They can just sign up for the course for free and they can watch a you know a, a pretty short video course which will educate them on all the kind of stuff that this book is educating therapists on. Only well, it's think, got a slightly different angle of yeah, course.
0: Let's put that out there now in case anybody wants to go there. What is the website that they would need to go to?
1: Okay, so if you were a if you were somebody who was, you know, a client rather than a therapist, you would go to liverpoolpsychotherapy.co.uk. So that's liverpoolpsychotherapy.co.uk. And you'll find a course on there called Childhood Trauma, Gone for Good. And then if you're not a therapist, that's going to educate you anyway on exactly how all this stuff works.
0: Did you say there was one for clients and you have got another one for therapists or not?
1: Yes, yeah, so that that's the one for clients. Yeah. If therapists wanted to find out more about this, they can either go to remove trauma.com which is the website for the book and on there there's some video training which is free there's um a roadmap um of the kind that we've described here today and there's a whole load of um downloadables for free as well that you can use in the therapy room or if you wanted some articles you can go to FreshTherapists.com, which is the website that i run that educates people about memory reconsolidation.
0: why did you call it fresh Therapist? That's- Kind of interesting, uh, struck me.
1: Yeah, I mean, one, I liked I liked the name, but I made a little acronym out of fresh. I wondered if so, it was
0: something like that. Yeah.
1: yeah, so F is fast in the sense that clients don't want to be rushed, but they do want change to come as quickly as possible. R is reconsolidation, which is what we're talking about. E is experiential because it's my belief that when we're experiential in the therapy uh-huh. and using the imagination that we discover a lot more. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. S means that it sticks because I think it's an important part nice. of this, that yeah. the change is permanent and that people don't relapse and H is that it's habit free because it's always kind of bugged me that uh, when we have trauma, we're expected to then go away and do all these habits and exercises to keep the trauma at bay for the rest of our lives. And people who didn't experience trauma don't have to do that. Now, thankfully, uh, because of this discovery in neuroscience, people who have had trauma can overcome it, and then they don't need to do that. Once this change happens, Dave, it is literally gone, and the client just doesn't have the problem anymore. And it's a remarkable thing to see. It's the kind of thing that makes you a little skeptical, even as you're doing it. But, of course... (laughs) i I know that it works, and I see yeah. it working all the time, wow, and yet it's still kind of miraculous.
0: that must be very gratifying
1: it's lovely it's It's yeah. the best thing ever, yeah, 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 that's
0: <laughs> great, that's great. Is there anything that we haven't touched on here that you want to be sure to get into this?
1: I think the main thing is to understand that this isn't a modality, um because even when i'm even when I'm teaching people about this. People still get sucked into the idea that there's a right way to do this. And obviously, we've talked about certain missteps that you can um, go on to miss memory consolidation. Yeah. But the idea that this is not a modality, I think, is key. This is a destination. There's lots and lots of different modalities that do this. The modality that you work in as you're listening to this can also be tweaked to ensure that you can also reach the same destination. Uh-huh. So everything is up for grabs. So anytime you see somebody doing memory reconsolidation, just remember that they're not doing memory reconsolidation. They're moving towards that destination. One of the guys who trained me he always used to say that therapy is a process, not an event. I think with this discovery, I'd amend that and say therapy is a process that leads to an event but how you trigger that event and the process that you use to get there, well, it's infinite. So no one modality is yeah. doing memory reconsolidation, and I think that should free people up to have a look at what they're doing themselves already and how to tweak that, and also just free them up to be um, to be improvisational, to be creative, to come up with ideas that seem to meet what your what the brain needs. And also notice things as well that seem to be offering mismatch experiences and start to tweak those things out in the wild that you notice.
0: Okay, well, I think this is, um, is brilliant. I, I think you're very articulate in the way that you've presented all of this, and it, it sounds wonderful. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully, good. the book is a is an easy way of getting started on uh-huh. it. The layout is really um, straightforward. It's not just like a big block of words, and yeah. I think a client would understand it. So a therapist definitely would, yeah, and yeah. it's something that you'd probably be able to read in a couple of days and then start. You know, and of course, if anyone's got any questions, they can always reach out to me. I always I always love hearing from people who are starting this journey because I remember what it was. How exciting it was to start this journey myself yeah, yeah
0: yeah well it's been delightful meeting you and speaking with you alan and uh, likewise yeah so alan perry thanks for being my guest today on shrink wrap radio and uh keep listening <laughs> My guest, Alan Perry, Liverpool trauma therapist, was especially delightful. Of course, finding out in the course of our conversation that he's a longtime shrink wrap radio listener only adds to my delight. Alan is the author of the 2022 book, How to Remove Trauma Response, a memory reconsolidation guidebook for therapists and coaches. And a fine book it is. In fact, it strikes me as the perfect book at the perfect time. Trauma in general, whether big or small, is one of the major topics of our time. And of course, recent developments in neuroscience and our understanding of the brain have led to better, more precise treatments. In fact, Allen believes that we now know how to completely erase traumatic memories such that they will never return. I'm generally adverse to such categorical claims of cure. However, Alan's assertion is tempered by his understanding that many therapies, past and present, utilize the same brain pathways whether or not their model spells it out in those terms. Drawing on the work of Bruce Ecker and others, He explains that the brain is a prediction engine. Trauma results when we get hung up on a persistent contradiction between prediction based on painful past experience and other experiences that don't fit that prediction. The conflict may be either conscious or unconscious. When the patient accepts the contradiction and is able to let go of the conflict, the traumatic memory is, in effect, rewritten. Allen goes on to explain that sometimes this work is best accomplished in dialogue and sometimes in guided imagery. He further explains it's not enough for the patient to be offered a pleasant imaginary journey because that lays down a separate brain pathway. Pleasant as that imaginary vision might be. It doesn't touch the brain pathway associated with the suffering. This book is especially timely because of the growing interest in memory reconsolidation and the fact that it lays out a step-by-step guide for getting to the end goal. That might mistakenly give the impression that he's suggesting a rote cookbook approach, He emphasizes memory reconsolidation is not a method, but a process to get patient and therapist to the end goal of complete erasure of the affect associated with troubling memories. He says there are many pathways to that goal, and rather than being a rote process, it will demand flexibility and improvisational skill on the part of the therapist. Ellen has gone to some pains to make these ideas easy to read and understand by all. To give you some idea of the writing, consider the following brief samples from the book. Quote The eye has a mechanism that changes the size of your pupils. Point a flashlight in your eyes, and the pupils go smaller, move into a dark room, they grow big. It's a biological mechanism and is a natural way that the eye works the brain has biological mechanisms too one of them is called memory reconsolidation it doesn't change the size of your pupils it erases the trauma completely so it's gone for good this is a natural way that the brain works Close quote. quote this book is intended for therapists Counselors and coaches who work with or hope to work with the effects of trauma. In particular, it covers a discovery in neuroscience. This discovery identified a brain mechanism that literally erases the trauma response. Close quote. Here's another quote Let me reassure you, memory reconsolidation is not a method at all. It is simply a description of what happens in the brain to allow it to overwrite trauma responses. It is a description of a biological brain mechanism. Close quote. Finally, he writes, quote, Erasure therapy is different because it overwrites the trauma response, meaning it cannot return. Change is permanent. It requires no effort from the client in order to maintain it. Close quote. Alan goes on to provide valuable free information online. The course he puts out for the general public, that is, not therapists, is found at liverpoolpsychotherapy.co.uk forward course. His book's website with free bonuses, can be found at removetrauma.com. And his website aimed at therapists with all sorts of articles and training on memory reconsolidation will be found at freshtherapists.com. Once more, the book is How to Remove Trauma Response, a Memory Reconsolidation Guide for Therapists and Coaches. By Alan Perry. Hi, Dr. Dave. This is Jacinda Duke in Wellington, New Zealand, and I just made my second donation this week, and it feels good. And so, all of you listeners out there who haven't put your hand in your pocket yet, I strongly encourage you to, so we can continue to enjoy this wonderful service that's been provided. Keep it up, love it, thanks. Thank you, Jacinda in Wellington, New Zealand, from way over there to way over here. Thanks for taking the step to make yourself part of the paying Shrink Wrap Radio community. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. Once again, time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to my guest today, Liverpool trauma therapist, Alan Perry. He's the author of the very timely and excellent 2022 book, How to Remove Trauma Responses, a memory reconsolidation guidebook for therapists and coaches. Alan, thank you for your book and for your very candid and richly informative conversation with me. Our next episode will feature UK associate Isabella Clark, once again interviewing the Stoic philosopher, Professor Massimo Pigliucci about his latest book, The Quest for Character, what the story of Socrates and Alcibiades teaches us about our search for good leaders. Never has good leadership been more important than now, so I do hope you'll join us for this fascinating conversation. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, And our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know and just enough to make you dangerous.